Hello and welcome to Hooked on History. This is the third episode of our series on drug use in the 1950s and 60s. In this episode, we'll be covering the thalidomide catastrophe. I hope you enjoy the show. On the 22nd of June 1961, in Hamburg, a northern German city on the Elbe, Dr. Wittekun Lenz, the head of Hamburg's children's clinic, got a visit from a new father, Karl Schultillen. You see, Karl had seeked Dr. Lenz out to investigate a condition that was plaguing his hometown of Menden. A couple months prior, Karl's wife, Linda, gave birth to their son, little Jan Schultillen, and the sight of the child shocked him. The newborn's arms were malformed, short, with missing fingers. What's with your husband? Has he got no arms? A midwife had asked Linda on seeing the child. The fact that Carl's sister had recently given birth to a similarly malformed child did seem to point the fault at Carl, or at least his genetics. These events traumatized him. Uh, he later would state, For days I didn't see people's faces or bodies. All I saw were their hands. However, Carl would learn that many more children in Menden were born with malformed limbs, one in the same hospital the day before Jan. Carl told the doctor he suspected some geographical cause was cursing the newborns of his hometown with these malformities. Initially, uh, Dr. Lenz didn't put much stock in the father's claims and geographic theory, but upon contacting a Menden obstetrician, he was surprised to find out that Many babies had been born with malformed limbs, not only in Menden, but also in the neighbouring towns of Beckum and Munster, all towns within 40 miles of each other. It seemed Carl was onto something. In a subsequent meeting, Lenz told Carl he may need a detective, not a doctor. Even more worryingly, Lenz conducted a study in his town, Hamburg, of uh, babies born with Focamelia, which is this condition where babies are born with malformed or missing limbs. He found that in 28 years, only one child had been born with this condition. Eight such babies had been born in the last year alone. Now, Hamburg is 170 miles away from Menden. Lenz realized this wasn't some local problem. Germany was in the midst of an epidemic. But Lenz still had no idea what was causing it. My father and Professor Lenz, they traveled Germany in their old Volkswagen and they went from one small village to another and uh, asked, are there any children with short legs or short arms born? And those kids were hidden away at that time in the small villages. And he, he asked in restaurants and bars and at the local police office and everybody said, no, not in our town. And then he showed a picture of me and said, this is my boy. And can I please repeat my question? And then they said, well, at the end of the road, there has been a very sad incident. His big break would come on the 11th of November, uh, almost four months after Carl had approached him. A mother of an armless baby girl told him she had taken a sedative, Contagen, during the early days of her pregnancy. And so had a friend who had also given birth to a, another sufferer of Focomelia. Lenz felt he was onto something, and the next day he wrote to a friend that he had, quote, a hot lead. After four days of further investigation, he was sure. He would write to the drug's manufacturer, German pharmaceutical company Grunenthal, uh, explaining the situation and imploring the company not to, quote, wait for the strict scientific proof. I consider it necessary to withdraw the drug immediately from the market until its innocence in causing Focomelia is proved with certainty. End quote. Um, before we continue, I, I think it's worth mentioning what this drug is and, 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 and the role it played at the time. So, Contagen was the trade name for the hypnotic and sedative thalidomide, first marketed in Germany in 1957. Now, thalidomide was one of those new propriety or, or patented drugs that we described last episode, which were um, trying to muscle in on that huge barbiturate market share. The tactic thalidomide's manufacturers used to promote their product was to frame it as the safe alternative. 
you see, one of the big drawbacks of barbiturates were that a lot of people died from overdosing on them, both uh, accidentally and purposefully. It was pretty much impossible to overdose on thalidomide. The marketers used this one aspect of the drug to frame thalidomide as the safest sedative around. For example, uh, here's the thalidomide ad that ran in the British Medical Journal in 1961. In the UK, uh, a company called Distillers had bought the rights to sell thalidomide there and did so under the name Distable. Anyway, the ad pictures a toddler getting into a medicine bottle, creating this sense of impending tragedy. In bold, the ad proclaims, This child's life may depend on the safety of Distaval. Consider the possible outcome in a case such as this had the bottle contained a conventional barbiturate. Year by year, the barbiturates claim a mounting toll of childhood victims, yet today it is simple enough to prescribe a sedative and hypnotic which is both highly effective and outstandingly safe. Distaval has been prescribed for nearly three years in this country, where the accidental poisoning rate is notoriously high. But there is no case on record in which even gross overdosage with distival has had harmful results. Depend on the safety of distival. This marketing tactic proved profitable and made thalidomide a very popular drug. Uh, and this perceived safety and the fact that it combated nausea led to doctors prescribing it to pregnant women to combat morning sickness, a practice thalidomide's manufacturers were all too happy to encourage. This was the drug that Dr. Lenz was now accusing of causing an epidemic of birth defects. Perhaps unsurprisingly, Grunenthal reacted aggressively to this challenge to their marketing claims. Lenz would meet their representatives twice in November in the health ministry's offices. Both times they reacted aggressively to Lenz's claims and threatened him with legal action. The pharmaceutical company would stubbornly fight to keep this drug on the market, even uh, after receiving a letter from that British manufacturer, Distillers, essentially saying, um, hey, we've been receiving these reports that a thalidomide might be responsible for the birth of six deformed, now dead, babies. Have you, have you heard anything else like this? Perhaps relevant to Grunenthal's director of research and development, Henrik Mukta, uh, his refusal to pull the drug from sale is that Mukta received this bonus of 1% of the sales of some of the company's drugs, thalidomide included. This bonus in 1961 would net Mukta 325,000 marks, a huge amount, especially if you compare it to the fact that his salary was only 14,400 marks. However, the company's hand was thankfully forced on the 26th of November when the newspaper Valtam Suntag, um, World on Sunday, reported Dr. Lenz's assertion that a sleeping pill was causing the epidemic of deformed births, and what was worse, the manufacturer had refused to withdraw the drug. The article would call for authorities to intervene. Grunenthal quickly withdrew the drug, um, stating it was due to a media frenzy rather than anything to do with thalidomide itself, and distillers would follow suit in the UK. Now, sources vary, but in all, thalidomide caused at least 10 to 15,000 babies to be born worldwide, with missing digits, arms and legs, and deformities of internal organs. These malformations would be most concentrated in Europe, Canada, and Australia. Thalidomide likely caused thousands more deaths in utero, although for obvious reasons, it's impossible to estimate that number. Again, sources vary, but it seems that under half have survived until today, into the late 50s or early 60s, many still waiting for more than a token amount of compensation from the responsible pharmaceutical manufacturers. I suppose it's panic really going on um my dad was obviously panicking my mum was sedated um the midwife i think was running around like a headless chicken um the gp was totally unused to anything like this i believe she was uh, kept um set, uh, 
unconscious you know she was given sleeping pills to just just not wake up uh, I also believe that I didn't see her for quite a while about 10 days or so and I believe that my father was told that you know come down with with anesthetic anesthetics to you know we, we can put her life at an end um, or or it was even suggested to go and put me in the jungle where the animals could get to me and just, just forget about it. But when I was born, they took me away and they told my mother I had no arms and no legs. And she said, I don't want to see the baby because um, she said that she knew if she saw me, she would love me because I was her baby. So there was that. she knew there was going to be that bond if she saw me, but she didn't want to love me if I had no arms and no legs because therefore I wouldn't have any life. And... My mum was sort of, I think her first reaction was, oh, I've had one of those babies. Um, and then she said her next reaction was to sort of systematically look at my arms and my legs and work out what was missing and what I did have. And one of the things she said that I thought was really lovely was she looked at my fingers and thought, oh, well, she's got a finger to wear a ring on. If ever she gets married, you know, she's got a finger. Um, I don't think... I don't think I, until I had my daughter, I, I don't think I realised how hard that was for her. And I think, you know, nothing, nothing will ever take away the pain that she went through and probably still goes through. I mean, I just think, I wish that whole situation had been handled so differently for her. And I just can't. I don't think she's ever been truthful about how she really felt. I think she's just tried to put a brave face on it. But it must have been awful, really awful. Um, he said they're folded back and they're not developed as they should be. And my dad said to my mum, if you don't want to keep her, we don't have to keep her. Uh, my mum said, well, I want to see my baby. And the nurses then brought me into her, and um, apparently my mum looked at me, and she said, "I'll make you independent if it's the last thing I do." I originally wasn't going to do an episode on thalidomide. Rather undeserving of the subject, I was going to stick it in the marketing episode as a sign of what can go wrong. But I read this book, Silent Shock, on Thalidomide, and having read all of this medical literature from that time, I realized that the practices which have since been identified as causing the tragedy were being openly complained about at the time. And as I haven't seen anyone else put the disaster in this context, I thought I'd have a go at it. Now, a good example of these complaints were two articles published in an issue of The Lancet in the summer of 1961. Uh, the Lancet, for those who don't know, is, a, is another of those like old, prestigious British medical journals. These two articles sparked an argument within the pages of The Lancet that lasted for months. The first was by an anonymous author, a teacher at an American medical school, and the second was an editorial piece. These articles went beyond complaining about drug marketing and extended to drug testing practices and the nature of the relationship between the medical profession and the pharmaceutical industry. Now, the way drug testing worked at this time was first the company would do toxicity tests on animals and humans to see whether the drug was dangerous or not. Then the drug was sent out to the medical profession who would conduct clinical tests to see, you know, whether the drug actually worked. The American author argued that, as of late, an ulterior motive had been worked into these clinical trials. And that was marketing. You know, you send the unreleased product out to as many doctors as possible to get the word out about the drug before its release. This had apparently led to a situation where Trials were being conducted by doctors who really had no business doing them. You know, the drug companies were apparently approaching professionals who, due to their lack of experience or training, had no business conducting these trials. 
Druckhausers had also apparently become quite careless in their toxicity tests and the information clinical testers received sometimes even included tests conducted on animals in the human testing section. The American author partly blamed many clinical testers' try first and be sorry after attitude on how, you know, drug companies were able to get away with this. Unsurprisingly, this had led to many premature, faulty, injurious, or even fatal drug trials. The article also highlighted how incentives offered by the drugs manufacturers might color the tester's opinion. Apparently, the manufacturer could pay for a technician or offer personal grants, take the tester out for dinner, or pay them to attend some distant medical congress. Or, in its more subtle forms, you know, have the firm's statistician help interpret the doctor's results, and even write their paper for them. This financial support could quickly lead to a situation where the drug tester and their lab was totally reliant on the firm for economic survival. The American author claimed the results of this could be seen in journal articles on new drugs, which had become increasingly positive and often advocated for the drug's widespread use. Now, as I said, these articles caused a lot of debate and inspired a reply from Jay Gorringe, who was a director at a British pharmaceutical company. He wrote that this money wasn't used to gain favorable results. You know, we want good research on our drugs. Otherwise, we'll have to pull the drug after we spent all this money on producing and marketing it. And anyway, someone needs to pay for the costs of these trials. Overall, Gorringe felt the original article painted an unfair picture of the manufacturer's motives. But to be fair to the American author, they weren't really commenting on the firm's motives. I mean, they were, but the main point was that from the doctor's point of view, if your clinical trial is totally financially dependent on a drug company, it may have some influence on you. Um, in a reply to Gorringe's reply, like I said, this, these articles caused a lot of back and forth in the, in the pages of The Lancet. But anyway, in, in, a, in a reply to Gorringe's reply, the American author would point this out. Quote, Untoward pressures do arise during the conduct of clinical trials, as can be witnessed by those involved in them. This, in fact, is an inevitable component of our competitive society. The point I was trying to make was that it behooves both the physician and the industry to resist untoward pressures for the sake of the recipients of the results of therapeutic research, the patient, end quote. Uh, the editorial piece would also comment on the poor conditions of drug testing in the UK, pointing out that drugs were marketed without good enough evidence and that, quote, though they, uh, speaking of the drug manufacturers, though they spend a great deal of money on clinical trials, much of this goes on what one may call non-research, which expects the answer yes and can usually evoke at least a perhaps, end quote. But the main focus of this article was on the relationship between the industry and the profession, which had become too close. In the opening paragraph, the Lancet editor wrote, quote, Many doctors are beginning to become restive under what they regard as commercial pressures. The tendency they feel is towards transforming useful cooperation into a rather dangerous collaboration. And this feeling has enough foundation to make all parties think again about their role and their relationship. End quote. After discussing how this culture within the medical profession of accepting gifts from pharmaceutical firms was sapping objectivity, the editor claimed that medical journals themselves were particularly guilty of this, as advertisements could be seen as financial subsidies. This is not to say that, you know, the advertisements were necessarily affecting the articles within the journal. Uh, doctors were still free to criticize a drug and its use. But this reliance on marketing money would give journals less flexibility on, you know, not advertising drugs that might not be found up to snuff. This problem was um, exacerbated by the fact that 
you know, adverts are more entertaining and persuasive than the medical literature within a journal. Quote, The drab and prosaic legitimate journals must limp along on relatively meagre resources, openly raised through paid subscriptions, or stoop to sharing the promoter's bounty by carrying his advertisements, which enshroud and often conflict with the editorial text. The beautiful and exciting magazines and newspapers from the industry can be given away, whatever the cost, because the expense is conveniently included in the price of products the physician is led to prescribe. End quote. And it's easy to understand why this would be. I mean, journal articles are firstly written by doctors, pharmacologists, chemists, you know, not professional writers, or marketers who have dedicated their time to figuring out how to write interesting and persuasive copy. But also, doctors' claims are limited by the scientific process. They do have to back up their claims, you know, rather well. Marketers aren't held to what they say to the same extent. Now, basically, in the war over drug information being presented to doctors, the medical journals were losing to drug marketers. As I said, these articles inspired lots of letters to be written in in reply, largely from drug houses. To sum up their response, many agreed with the broad strokes of what was said in the two articles, and that there was needs for some voluntary reform, and I stress voluntary, on the side of the profession. But they always made sure to point out that, you know, my company doesn't conduct any of these poor practices, uh, and produces extremely good research. You know, don't generalize the whole industry due to the actions of a few bad eggs. And, listen, there's, there is truth in what they're saying. There are pharmaceutical companies out there who were, you know, respecting the scientific process and conducting careful and very good research. Yet, their admittance that these bad eggs exist does show that at least a minority we're abusing the lax laws surrounding drug testing and marketing and the acceptance of this behavior by many in the profession. Another interesting letter came from a Dr. T. Benz. Uh, he attacked the woe-is-me attitude of the original two articles, pointing out that this situation was largely due to the apathy of the profession itself. You know, doctors were fully able to refuse to see pharmaceutical representatives or ask to be removed from mailing lists and not prescribe the products of companies they found lacking. He also points out that, listen, clinical testing is still the medical profession's responsibility. Um, you know, and many of the failings can be seen as the profession failing to install a proper system. His feeling that it was the profession's fault that the industry could so easily take advantage of them is probably best summed up by his concluding statement. Quote, it seems to me that in every country, the profession gets the industry it deserves. This statement would form the title of the most comprehensive reply from a pharmaceutical industry worker. Published on October 14th, 1961, a couple months after the original Lancet articles, and a little over a month before Lens will blow the whistle on thalidomide. This article from our firm's medical advisor painted a picture of the situation just as damning as the other two. First of all, the article pointed out what we discussed in the last episode, that most new drugs hold no great you know, therapeutic advantage, and they, they tended to be just these Me Too drugs, uh, copies of drugs that already exist, just with the molecule manipulated to get around patent laws. This meant aggressive sales techniques had to be employed to persuade doctors to prescribe one drug over its practically the same competition. This had led to a situation where advertising claims continually had to become more and more over the top. Quote, if one conversationalist in a crowded room raises his voice, ultimately everybody else in the room will be shouting at the top of their voice in an effort to make themselves heard. 
Pharmaceutical houses have learned from bitter experience that it is the policy of the loudest and most blatant advertiser which brings in the business, even from the medical profession. End quote. As for our standards of testing, the article argued that there was a stark difference. Quote, the best we have are the best in the world, and recognized as such by colleagues everywhere. The worst, a little short of malpractice. End quote. The correspondent would also show how the profession could be corrupted. Apparently many senior doctors in Britain were receiving large fees from individual drug houses, yet rarely would disclose this information when they wrote articles describing the merits and promoting the use of that firm's drugs. The article also complained about the widespread use of paying general practitioners substantial amounts to undertake therapeutic trials. This popularity may have been due to the American author's reason for mass clinical trials, that they doubled as marketing. SGPs will be the ones prescribing many of these new drugs, you know, it stands to reason to introduce it to them as early as possible, like a pre-release sneak peek. The article did call for some light government intervention. However, the main focus was for the profession and medical journals to do more about lax clinical trials and to stop falling for marketing techniques so easily. The correspondent's frustration over this declining situation can be seen in their conclusion, quote, I believe that the most important and most urgent steps to improve the present relationship between the industry, the profession, and the patient could, indeed should, be taken by the medical profession itself. In the long run, all would benefit, including the industry. I see this problem as one who enjoys the work of developing and testing new drugs, but who's also subject to repeated pressure to lower the standard. For the lowering of standards, there are very cogent business reasons. First, the success of competitors who have lowered theirs. And secondly, the gullibility of the medical profession. And, I mean, this calls into question some of what we heard in the last episode, that this aggressive marketing was for the good of the industry, and the hyper-competitiveness would lead to a better pharmaceutical industry and better drugs as a result. However, what's being presented here is the exact opposite. That hyper-competitiveness and lack of government oversight was leading to worse research. And, I mean, with the gift of hindsight, it's easy to see why this would be. I mean, if, uh, if you're operating in a situation where you don't need to back up your marketing claims, you know, why waste money on expensive drug trials? What was being rewarded was not high standards of research, but aggressive and sophisticated marketing. On top of this, these articles show that by 1961, at least, the existence of poor drug testing, an epidemic of misleading marketing claims, and a worryingly close relationship between the industry and the profession was an open secret. Let's get back to thalidomide and uh, see how these complaints pertain to its release. Um, just a note: we're gonna we're going to focus on distillers because, uh, well, mainly because they're in the UK and all and all of my research is in the UK, but also because Grunenthal, you know, probably the more interesting company to look at. They go beyond the, your sort of garden variety of corporate greed. This was a, a company whose 
board was like was packed with with ex Nazis. Uh, they had a they had an ex war criminal running the uh, as the as the head of the board at one point, uh, Henrik Muchter, uh, that who we discussed at the beginning. During the war, he was uh, he was testing vaccines on human beings. Um, ethically, as a company. Um, they kind of go a bit above and beyond, let's say. But if you do want to know more about this company and all of the practices and the shady dealings, uh, I can't recommend that book, Silent Shock enough. But anyway, distillers. Now, they were actually a, a whiskey company, as, as the name might suggest. But, you know, they wanted to branch out into that hugely profitable market of pharmaceuticals. But researching a new drug is really expensive and, and takes a long time. So instead, in 1957, they bought the rights to sell that promising new sedative thalidomide from Grunenthal. Distillers would sell the drug under the name Distival. And as mentioned in the introduction, if they marketed it successfully enough, the company stood to make a huge amount of money. Now, despite the chance of riches ahead, Distillers performed their pharmacological testing on the cheap. The company's pharmacologist, George Somers, later admitted, quote, I did not have the time to carry out my own long-term research on thalidomide before it was launched here. It was early days in the establishment of Distillers as a drug company. I had little assistance, and I worked on three other drugs at the same time, in very cramped conditions. End quote. Somers would also say that if he had had more time with the drug, he would have thrown it out the window. Instead, distillers just relied on Grunenthal's toxicity testing, which was, you know, severely lacking. As for clinical testing, distillers provides a perfect example of the American author's ulterior motive behind clinical tests. They simply sent samples out to a large number of friendly GPs, Distiller's medical advisor, Dr. Walter Kennedy, wrote in a letter back to Grunenthal that this scattergun tactic might not satisfy medical purists, but these tests were easy to arrange and aroused interest in the drug. <laughs> this wasn't a clinical trial, it was a marketing campaign. And as for the actual adverts printed in the British Medical Journal, it's not surprising that distillers would latch on to their claims of safety even with their lax testing. Claiming your drug was safe was an obvious and endemic tactic during the 50s. You know, in 1957, Milton was uniform in action and remarkably free from side reactions. Milton acts safely and selectively to calm restlessness. Blah, 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 blah. You know, if you remember that Dexedrine ad. Dexedrine, safe, effective appetite control. I mean... Listen, the, the, the benefits of advertising the safety of your drug to doctors is self-explanatory. With worries over the dangers of nicotine and tar, tobacco companies even got involved. A 1955 Pall Mall ad in the British Medical Journal bragged of 32% less nicotine, more Virginia flavour. Pall Mall traps 32% of the nicotine and 3,300 micrograms of tars per cigarette. Watch the filter change colour as you smoke. Britain's first built-in filter, Pall Mall, pleasure plus protection. As we described last week, despite doctors complaining that these ads were not being held accountable for their claims, nothing was really done about it. So as that correspondent from the industry pointed out, ads became louder and bolder in their claims. While Distival originally ran with the wishy-washy slogan, safe sedation, sounder sleep, by 1960, this drug, which had barely any adequate testing, was probably yelling the loudest, advertising as the safest sedative known. It would be a GP called Leslie Florence that would first challenge this claim. Florence learned about thalidomide upon its release in 1958. Um, it should be unsurprising to you guys at this point that he did not learn about it from some balanced report in an academic journal, but from a distiller's rep armed with free samples and the super safe, super effective sales pitch. Just another example of the 
pharmaceutical companies educating doctors on what drugs to use. Florence and his three-year-old both suffered from eczema, which made it hard to sleep, so he excitedly used the drug on himself and his son. And he was very impressed with the results and started liberally prescribing the apparently side-effect-free drug. However, by the end of 59, he and three other patients who had taken it started developing symptoms of peripheral neurotitis, um, which is essentially nerve damage. After a back and forth with distillers, they reiterated that thalidomide was non-toxic and that he should look other places. However, the fact that symptoms subsided after he stopped using the drug aroused his suspicion, and in December 1960, Florence had a letter published in the British Medical Journal titled, Is Thalidomide to Blame? The letter essentially presents the evidence he had. Symptoms of nerve damage starting in people who had taken the drug and subsiding when they stopped. He then asked if anyone else was finding similar results. Now, beyond starting the conversation in Britain that thalidomide was not all that it was made out to be, its importance was much greater across the Atlantic. You see, in the US, uh, FDA doctor Francis Kelsey was investigating whether thalidomide should be cleared for sale. Um, after she read Florence's reports of nerve damage in the British Medical Journal, she delayed the drug's release until she received better testing on the drug's toxicity and, interestingly enough, its effects on the fetus. But we'll get back to that later. Florence's letter and Kelsey's refusal to release the drug without adequate tests undoubtedly saved the US from the thalidomide disaster. In the UK, replies in the British Medical Journal started coming in confirming Florence's suspicions. The first one, interestingly enough, was from distillers themselves, in which they now admitted that nerve damage seemed to be a side effect of the drug, although a rare one apparently. Despite this, distillers still ran there. This child's life may be dependent on the safety of distillable ad for months to come. And if we look at a timeline of reports in 1961, it's easy to see how these ads telling people to depend on the safety of distillable were drowning out doctors' reports discouraging the drug's use. Uh, on 7th of January, same issue distillers confirmed distillable caused nerve damage. Front matter told doctors to depend on the safety of distival. 22nd of January again. Depend on the safety of distival. 28th of January. A letter from members of a neurological unit claiming to have five patients suffering from nerve damage due to distival. 18th of February. Depend on the safety of distival. 11th of March. Depend on the safety of distival. 18th of March. Depend on the safety of distival. And a letter from a doctor saying distival was suspected of causing nerve damage in two patients in the back. 24th of June. Depend on the safety of distival. Uh, this would be the last time this ad would be run in the British Medical Journal. Now, I mean, ignoring distillers' unethical practice of continuing to promote the lidamide as this pinnacle of safety despite knowing this to be untrue. If we examine the behavior of the British Medical Journal in this period, we can see their reliance on advertising money meant they were unable or unwilling to pull an ad which letters published in their own journal, not only from doctors but from the manufacturer itself, admitted was untrue. In a newspaper article after thalidomide's role in causing birth defects was fully appreciated and felt, a doctor was asked why these early warnings of thalidomide's side effects had not discouraged doctors from prescribing the drug. He answered that presumably not every doctor reads the British Medical Journal. And this may well be true. But that timeline shows that if a doctor was only an occasional reader of the journal, he or she was much more likely to see ads proclaiming the drug's benefits than letters warning against its use. On the 30th of September, uh, around the time Lenz was investigating the rate of malformed births in Hamburg, 
the British Medical Journal published a definitive article linking thalidomide to nerve damage. It was a study of 13 patients who had developed neuropathy after taking Distival. The author's conclusion of their investigations was reported thusly. <clears throat> Our patient developed symptoms from 2 to 18 months after starting regular medication, which is suggestive of an etiological relation. And this is supported by many other unusual clinical features that were common to the group. A careful study of our cases has shown that only one patient had taken any substance other than thalidomide to which neuronal damage could be attributed. In this case, the intake of alcohol had been for a relatively short time, and signs were very different from those commonly found in alcoholic peripheral neurotitis. It seemed reasonable, therefore, to attribute the neuropathy here described to thalidomide. How how is it that that Nancet editorial described the language of journals as compared to marketers? Drab and prosaic. It seemed reasonable, therefore, to attribute the neuropathy here described to thalidomide. This child's life may depend on the safety of Distival. Depend on the safety of Distival. Uh, unsurprisingly, the article was ineffective at discouraging the drug's use. A month later, Heathfield, a doctor at a neurological clinic, wrote in to complain that distival was being widely prescribed and would soon be the most common cause of neuropathy. He also pointed out the irony that although the manufacturer admitted to the side effect, distival was still being advertised as the ideal hypnotic. One reason he felt the profession had failed to combat this marketing was the uh, was that nomenclature problem we talked about in the last episode. Um, in the letters and articles, it was referred to as thalidomide, but the drug was more commonly known under its trade name, distival. As if to prove Heathfield's point, in that very issue, the British Medical Journal ran another ad for thalidomide. This time. It was mixed with aspirin and phenacetin, and was advertised under the name Valgus. Its slogan was, a safe hypnotic analgesic combination. The Stillers obviously felt that marketing claims did not have to represent the reality of their product. That said, uh, fairly loose marketing morals are also being displayed by the British Medical Journal. During this time, the, the pages of the journal were full of articles stating that tobacco gave you cancer and, and that smoking should be discouraged, yet they continued to advertise cigarettes. And let's not forget that this is the publishing arm of the British Medical Association, which boasts membership of tens of thousands of doctors. It isn't some rinky-dink operation. If any publication had the financial security to exercise some influence over the products it advertised, it would be this one. And listen, I know at the moment, we're not talking about the drug in the context of Focomelia, but it's not like nerve damage is a non-issue. For most, it would take years for symptoms to totally go away, so we'd never get feeling back. And let's not forget, we're, we're just talking about a sleeping pill here. There's many other options out there. Um, a bit before this, some Grunenthal reps drove over to East Berlin and, and tried to sell thalidomide to the communists. They were promptly showing the door. The East Germans had seen reports that it caused nerve damage and told the execs that they didn't feel the drug was needed. You know, it's a, it's a sleeping pill. They're, they're a dime a dozen. We don't need your problematic drug. Due to the amount of people involved in the medical profession, uh, it's always going to be slow to react and adopt the same opinions as those East Germans. But the British Medical Journal and other publications' willingness to continue to publish distillers' false claims only served to confuse the matter and make this process slower. Unfortunately, the stakes in this case were higher than nerve damage. They were the rate of babies being born with massive birth defects. Ultimately, it was Dr. Lenz leaking that story to the press in late November 
that would not only put an end to distillers' marketing, but also the drug itself. With the realization that thalidomide caused birth defects, uh, distillers' pharmacologist George Summers did some tests on pregnant animals and quickly found that thalidomide caused birth defects in rabbits and smaller litter sizes in rats. This would uh, actually leave Grunenthal and distillers with somewhat of a problem, as now they needed to develop an excuse as to why, you know, they hadn't done this before they released the drug. And the excuse they settled on was proclaiming that pharmacologists the world over don't conduct these tests on pregnant animals because no one knew that drugs could cross the placenta barrier. In other words, hey, we're just following the industry standard. And this is an argument that Grunenthal still cling to to this day. Now, the fact that Francis Kelsey, in 1961, refused to release thalidomide in the US without pregnancy tests uh, should be a first warning that this statement isn't true. Um, in reality, there were many reports throughout the 1940s and 50s which showed drugs could affect a fetus. Other companies had realized the potential dangers drugs could have on the fetus and did do tests on pregnant animals. During the 1950s, Park Davis & Co, for example, um, which interestingly enough was the company Jake Orange from earlier uh, represented, they conducted studies on how their drugs affected the fetus. Uh, in fact, ICI, Smith, Klein & French, two other companies who wrote in to complain about those Lancet articles, they also did tests on pregnant animals too. Um, now this isn't to say that this was the norm, but the industry standards that distillers and Grunenthal were excusing themselves with weren't the ones that read those Lancet articles in outrage and felt the need to write in to say that, hey, this might happen with other companies, but it doesn't represent our firm, or, or, or whose testing practices that, that correspondent from the industry described as, quote, the best in the world and recognized as such by colleagues everywhere. No, distillers' practices we're more in line with what that correspondent, well, he stops just short of accusing of malpractice. Now, on top of this, there's so much more evidence I can't get into of distillers and particularly Grunenthal ignoring warning signs and suppressing criticism of thalidomide. And listen, just because malpractice might be an industry norm, you know, that doesn't excuse you from malpractice. Unsurprisingly, parents of the victims did not think much of Grunenthal's and Distiller's excuse. As one mother wrote to the Guardian, quote, The makers of thalidomide must be very naive to say they never tested the drug on pregnant animals because no one else is doing it. They must surely realize that of all people who take drugs, pregnant women are the most vulnerable. Is the firm going to do nothing in the way of recompense for these maimed children? Withdrawing the drug now will not help them. No one can imagine the misery and heartbreak parents suffer when a deformed child is born to them. Because of thalidomide, my baby son has no arms. End quote. And listen, it's important to appreciate the psychological damage as well that this drug inflicted. Uh, many, many parents would, would go through their lives feeling extreme guilt um, over what they had done to their babies by taking this drug. She said, oh, you know, you're one of these thalidomide babies. And I said, well, why didn't you tell me before? And she said, because I thought you'd hate me. And I think for her, it was an immense relief to hear from me. Of course I don't. You know, that's ridiculous. Why would I hate you? Um, but it, I think a lot of women have, are, and will go to their graves with an enormous block of guilt weighing them down because no matter what you say about, you know, look, it was a load of scientists, it was a greedy corporate uh, organisation, it was government negligence, they were the ones that did the swallowing. So, yeah, we've had that conversation and, yes, I've tried to be reassuring, and has it helped? No, I don't think it has, and I don't think it does in most cases. 
She wouldn't say an awful lot about it other than her guilt because she said you can take a horse to water but you can't make him drink. That was her attitude to the whole thing. Uh, she totally blamed herself uh, because the doctors prescribed the drug but it was her decision to take it. I couldn't get her to think any other way. I did try because I never ever blamed her. It was difficult, but yes, uh, we have always spoken about it. I I knew from a very early age, I think five or six, that my arms were different to everybody else's because mum had taken a drug. So I actually do remember the day that my mum and I spoke about it and uh, we sat on the stairs in my mum's house and I'm not quite sure what provoked the conversation but I do remember her telling me why she took the drug and she didn't know that that's what it would do and that she was really very, very sorry. And I do know she carries the weight of the guilt today still and probably apart from everything that affects me the most is her guilt because I do not hold her responsible whatsoever. She is as much a victim as I am. And she went through hell as well. As, as difficult as my life has been. She has gone through it every step of the way with me. And I do wish that she would absolve herself of the guilt. I really, really do. That would be my one wish. Now, while the effects of thalidomide were first brought to the public attention by a leak in the press, in general, the press would show a surprising level of gullibility. I mean, okay, so early in 1962, some sections of the press would report on thalidomide in the context of the poor practices of the industry. Uh, the Guardian would put a couple articles out like this, and... The Birmingham Post released a, a very inflammatory article which asserted that the pharmaceutical industry was essentially using the British public as its poison testers. However, the press wouldn't truly become interested in the story until the summer of 62, and by this time, they had been properly briefed by distillers. The Guardian's medical correspondent, uh, Alfred Bryan, pretty much swallowed distillers' propaganda wholesale. In an article in late July, Brian explained away distillers and Grunenthal not testing thalidomide's potential effects on a fetus as, quote, Pharmacologists the world over did not consider it necessary to try to find out if any new drugs might have such an effect, end quote. And this was in no way unique to The Guardian. Um, pretty much across the board, the press accepted distillers' story. A Financial Times article seemed unwilling to even criticize the drug, stating, Thalidomide is an excellent sedative drug. And I stress that they use the word is, not, not was. Thalidomide is an excellent sedative drug which had been widely adopted by doctors, on the grounds that it was safer, more effective, and less likely to produce a hangover than barbiturates. End quote. The article would make no mention that the drug caused nerve damage. And it will go on to say that the drug had undergone careful laboratory and clinical trials. The Financial Times then claims that Grunenthal withdrew the drug as soon as it received information that it caused phocomelia, which we know from our introduction was far from the truth. Overall, Distillers was successfully controlling the narrative in the UK. And to be honest, they wouldn't need to for much longer. In November, the parents would start a lawsuit which placed a gag order on the press. Um, and to quickly highlight this lawsuit, essentially it was a mess. The court system totally failed the parents and it would take them a decade to get even a meager payout. This payout would carry the condition that all parents had to accept it in order to get it. So when some parents didn't, it caused massive infighting. 
in disgust over distillers' refusal to support the victims, the Sunday Times is investigative arm, which throughout this period was gathering tons and tons of evidence, uh, would end up breaking the gag order and released an article on distillers and Grunenthal's malpractice. This caused a huge swing in public opinion, and Distillers, who, if you remember, was mainly a drinks company, started facing boycotts. Their board members found that they were being followed by murmurs when they went out to public events. Under this pressure, distillers would end up upping their total payout from just over £3 million to £20 million. And to quickly examine the government's reaction, initially, it was muted to say the least. If you remember from last episode, the conservative government really had no intention of touching pharmaceutical companies. When thalidomide first came up in a parliamentary debate, uh, the Ministry of Health, which was now headed by the infamous Enoch Powell, pretty much took the line that, as politicians, this is none of our business. And just in case you think I'm exaggerating, uh, here are some quotes from the debate. Just a quick note that this debate took place in the context of Lord Cohen, who, who was um, essentially a government researcher, uh, double-checking clinical trials. Um, he had recently stated that only under half of the drugs released in the last year had had adequate clinical trials. So... A Labour MP, Pavitt, asks the Ministry of Health just how many drugs with such poor clinical trials has the NHS been prescribing, and what steps are the governments taking to protect patients? Edith Pitt, who uh, was sort of like uh, one of Enoch Powell's underlings, answered, quote, It is not for the right honourable friend to judge whether adequate clinical trials of a drug has taken place. It is the doctor's responsibility to decide whether he is justified in prescribing a particular drug. Pavitt then asked, in the context of Cohen's statements and thalidomide causing birth defects, quote, Is it not the ministry's duty to protect patients in this respect? Pitt simply answered that responsibility lay with the industry and the profession. And in general, Enoch Powell and the Ministry of Health didn't cover themselves in glory in the aftermath of this catastrophe. They refused to ever criticize the pharmaceutical industry, continually stating that it was of the highest standard and parroting distillers' claim that there was no way this could have been avoided. They even refused to back an inquest which would have investigated how all of this happened. Enoch Powell himself would meet a delegation of parents and apparently came off cold and uncaring. Um, later it was claimed the tone of this meeting was, you better not try and sue the government. However, there were political calls for reform. Uh, Baroness Dr. Summerskill, who we saw in the last episode, had been criticising the practices of the industry for a while, would not shut up about it, at least from Enoch Powell's point of view. Uh, she continually called for the government to do something to protect the public and even unsuccessfully campaigned for an exemption to made in the abortion laws to make it legal for pregnant women who had taken thalidomide to get abortions. But calls for the government to look into drug testing and to do something for these families certainly were not limited to the Labour Party. Uh, conservative backbenchers quickly started asking uncomfortable questions about government responsibility. Um, usually this was done with the caveat that the pharmaceutical industry has done nothing wrong. Bowing to this pressure, in 1963, the government funded the Safety of Drugs Committee, which would essentially evaluate the results of toxicity in clinical trials to see if a drug was safe enough to be brought to market. It also monitored the undesirable effects of drugs after marketing. However, due to the political beliefs of the Conservative Party, this was simply a voluntary situation, uh, not legislational law. When the, when the committee started to function in 1964, 
the pharmaceutical association simply swore to the committee they would follow their instructions. It took five more years and a change of government for actually legally binding legislation controlling pharmaceutical firms to, to be put into place. This would come in the form of the Medicines Act of 1968. This essentially gave the Safety of Drugs Committee legal power and finally did something about marketing claims. The act stated that standardized, clear, factual information had to accompany marketing material, essentially giving committee power to hold the industry accountable to their advertising claims. This would mark the end of the Wild West days of drug marketing in the UK. And the thalidomide disaster inspired reforms across the world. Even the US, which thankfully was spared from the worst effects, uh, they would strengthen the FDA. Uh, prior to this, the FDA was quite a corrupt organization, and that thalidomide was not cleared for release had far more to do with Francis Kelsey's ethics and diligence than the effectiveness of the FDA. The whole incident itself is an important case study to be aware of, as even if you do hold very liberal views towards how pharmaceutical firms should operate and have salient arguments about how government intervention has been a travesty, it would be hard to argue that there's not some need for vigilance over the relationship between the profession and the industry. Less as, as that editor said, their useful cooperation devolve into collaboration. It's a lesson which is still relevant to today, as any keen observer of the opioid epidemic knows. And if you are glad to see government oversight, um, these victims are probably your martyrs. Calls for reform were not very loud. By and large, even the medical profession wasn't overly keen on massive government oversight, uh, looking over their shoulders while they were doing all this drug testing. However, for the victims, this fight still isn't over, as they still seek for Grunenthal to accept responsibility for what they did. Grunenthal is still a privately owned company. The Wurtz family owns it today, just as it did in 1960. Uh, it does not have shareholders demanding returns. Um, the Wirtz family's personal fortune has been variously estimated at between two and three billion euros. Uh, it would not drive that family into penury or bankruptcy or poverty to loosen the purse strings and behave in a more generous fashion towards survivors. Why are we having to do this? Why are we having to struggle and fight and campaign and, and even, even have to ask for compensation that we deserve? Why aren't they, with their thousands or millions and millions that they're earning, why can't it come from them that we're sorry and this is, you know, you really deserve this. You really do deserve it. I know there are a lot of us, but then that's, the, that, that's your products that's caused all this. So my question to everybody, the whole world is why are we, is everybody standing by and letting us campaign and letting us fight for what is, should be rightly ours, you know? And the whole world is watching, watching us. But no, I mean, you know, publicity, yes, the newspapers are doing it too because they need a story, television is doing it because they need a story. But what about us? We're not stories. We're human beings. I not only want the money, I want the revenge. I want the revenge. You know, they, they killed 5,000 children. Yeah, they made another 5,000 children's life miserable. They made the life of 10,000 parents awful. Yeah, they are responsible and they should pay for it. If you'd like to support the victims, uh, please check out the thalidomidetrust.org. That's thalidomidetrust.org. 
For a transcript of this episode, uh, which I will include more information that I left out of the podcast episode, as well as references, please visit the Hooked on History website at hookedonhistory.co.uk. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating on whatever app you listen to it on, as it, uh, it makes a big difference in giving the series some exposure. And if you'd like to support the series, uh, any donations would be hugely appreciated. You can donate on the website at hookedonhistory.co.uk or at Patreon at patreon.com forward slash hookedonhistory. If you have any questions or wish to contact me, you can do so at hookedonhistorypodcast at gmail.com. That's hookedonhistorypodcast at gmail.com or on Twitter at history underscore hooked. Once again, I'd like to thank my brother Nick for making the music and Luke Ewer for adding his voice to those adverts. <laughs>